Psalmist said, it is good to be near to God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. And that's what we say this morning, oh God. It's good to be near to God. It's good to be with God's people. It's good to be in your presence. And so we thank you that you're here. We thank you that your spirit, oh, we thank you that your spirit has been so powerfully among us already, moving upon us and stirring us, comforting us, awakening us to the presence of God, filling us with love, binding us to the people around us, reminding us of who we are and where we're going. We love you. One thing God has spoken, said the psalmist, two things I have heard, that you, O oh God, are strong and that you are loving. And so we name your strength and your love in this house this morning, and we pray that you would fix us again in that place. Thank you for the scriptures that still speak to us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would lift up these words of the ancient text. We pray that you would make them our words for this moment. And so we say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, you may be seated. It is good to see you this morning, New Life East, if this is your first time with us. Uh, my name is Andrew, I'm the lead pastor here, and it's a delight to have you in our house. New Life East is one of eight congregations of New Life Church, meeting across the Colorado Springs area. We follow Jesus together by worshiping together, connecting with each other, serving uh, in this church and across the city. So if this is your first time, we'd love to meet you. Uh, I'll hang out, be hanging out at Connect Central for a few minutes after the service. We'd love to be able to say hey to you and answer any questions you might have. Um, we're in the middle of a series this summer uh, called The Church as a Sign here at New Life East. Church as a Sign of the Kingdom. And so one of the things that we've said is that signs give us some indication both of where we're going and they also give us an indication of where we are. And in the biblical mind, Signs work in exactly that same way, that God gives these signs that both let us know where the world is going and also what God is up to right now. I think that the church is actually the first sign of the kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. Something about how we conduct ourselves and what we do speaks of the one to whom we belong and where we're going. And so the last three weeks, we've spent some time kind of looking at the inner life of the church, like when the church gathers as the body of Christ. Uh, what are the things that it does that signal the kingdom of God? So we talked about singing, that our singing says something about who God is. And it also is a channel by which the presence of God comes into the world. We talked in week two about the table of the Lord, this culminating moment in worship where we come and we take the bread and we take the cup and we lift it up before the Lord and the Lord gives it back to us as a means by which we're united with the living person of Jesus Christ. And that moment is saying something to us about God saying that relationships are at the heart of reality and God is the kind of God who's willing to do whatever is necessary to deal with the disruptions wrought by sin in order to restore us to communion with him and one another. So the table is a sign in the midst of our gathered communion. Last week, Pastor Colin I talked about our loving service with one another and how that is a sign of the kingdom that is to come. Now, one of the things I think that we sometimes run into in the church is that we love it when we're gathered together our being gathered together is full of so much meaning and purpose and the singing makes us feel good and we're connected to God and the table is like this beautiful, you know, contemplative moment. And then, of course, we see all of our friends at church and it's all wonderful. And then we make the transition into like Monday. And Monday's kind of a tough moment for all of us, you know. And for many of us, 
our faith becomes kind of this, like we're sort of white knuckling it, you know, until we get back to Sunday. Or it just doesn't have all that much meaning. And we don't see how what happens Monday to Friday in our lives is really connected to the mission of God. I want to talk to you this morning about the work of our hands and how the work of our hands, our labor is connected to the mission of God, how our work itself is both the sign of the kingdom and the means by which the kingdom comes into the, this world. Look at what Paul says here in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, Paul has written this beautiful text, Colossians, if you've not read it. Colossians is one of the earliest letters of the New Testament, and it is among the most exalted Christologies. Christology is just our theology of Jesus. Exalted Christologies that you'll find in the New Testament. A beautiful statement of how God in Christ, like there's that beautiful Colossian hymn in the middle of chapter 1, that Christ Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, God reconciling all things to himself. It's an incredible letter. And then Paul gets to like the end of the letter, and he's starting to tell the church, like, because Jesus is Lord, and because all of these things about Jesus are true, what are you going to do about it? And he names some things that happen in domestic life. But then he gets to this moment here, and he says, speaking directly to the question of work, he says, whatever you do, what does the text say? Say it real loud. With all your hearts. They were called to have, like the heart is the center of our personality, the seed of our decision-making and our emotions. Everything comes from our hearts. And Paul says, don't just like do a nice job at it. But he says, whatever it is you do, wherever God has called you, wherever he's stationed you, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. And then say that bold face underline line, say it real loud. That's right. It's the Lord Christ that you're serving. That you're not just doing a job, but there's like a sacramental, we could call it, dimension to the work of our hands. In the same way that the bread and the cup become a meeting ground for the risen Christ, so he says that our work is a meeting ground between us and the risen Christ. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give you just some theological statements here that help us locate where work sits in terms of the plan of God so that what happens in your life Monday through Friday is connected in your own mind with the mission of God. Let's make this statement first. Number one, work is not a result of the fall. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're sitting there and you're going, but you haven't met my boss. Or you haven't done my job. You know, like preacher, you would change your mind if you were like working in my environment. And uh, we'll get to that because there is a disorder in our work that's wrought by sin. But the first place that you have to start is with an acknowledgement that work is not a result of the fall. We didn't start working because we defected from God. But work is actually built into the human calling and vocation from the very start. Look at Genesis chapter 1. The scripture says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may, what does the text say? Rule. From the very beginning, the human beings are to do things. They're to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves along the ground. Verse 27, he makes them in his own image. He blesses them and he says to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule. The blessing of God right from the get-go and the image of God, our notion of what it means to be made in the image of God, is connected to work. Human beings have something to do on planet earth. Genesis goes on to say, Genesis 2 and verse 15, next slide, that God took the man, the human being, and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it and take care of it. Those Hebrew words there are abad and shamar. Work it is abad. Shamar is take care of it. Everybody say abad and shamar. You speak Hebrew now. Congratulations. 
Abad, it's very interesting, actually. Those words, Abad and Shemar, are actually words that are used of the priests and the Levites and their work in the temple in the Old Testament. That they're called to be stewards and keepers of this sacred space. So for the writer of Genesis to be using them of the work of the human beings in the Garden of Eden says that whatever they're doing in the Garden of Eden is already sacred work just from the start. In fact, those two words, Abad and Shemar, they mean something very specific. Abad means that you draw the latent potential out of something. So to work a field of tomato plants means that I tend to them in such a way that they have the full yield of tomatoes, right? And to shamar it means that I put fences around it and I'm vigilant about it so that no malign influences get into it. Guys, that's the human vocation is to take care of God's world in that way. That we leverage our agency and our energy to try to bring out the latent potential of the world and also we guard it from malign influences, the things that would tear it apart. So you say, how is this a sign of? How is our work then a sign of who God is? Well, if human beings are made in the image and likeness of God and they work from the very start, what we see is that in the beginning, God did what? God created. So it's not like in the beginning, God was sitting there and sort of wrapped contemplation and intention on himself or something. In the beginning, God was not just sort of, uh, you know, just sitting up there in the clouds, eating bonbons or doing whatever. That's not. In the beginning, God what? In the beginning, God what? In the beginning, God he created the heavens and he did something. He was up to something. And the scripture everywhere believes, and of course, Genesis tells us that on the seventh day, God rested from his labors. So there is a moment of rest for God. But it seems that right after that, very shortly after that, God gets busy again. He's always just kind of active in his world, like doing things. The psalmist everywhere extols God for the fact that God is doing things. Psalm 77 verse 12, I will consider all of your, say it loud, and meditate on all of your. God is doing things. He's always at work. And we live in this world where there is this disposition, I think, to see the world that we live in. It's kind of like a clock, you know, that God, if there is a God, God made it and he wound it up and now it just kind of runs on its own sort of head of steam and principles. And that's not the perspective of the biblical mind. To the biblical mind, our world goes because God is constantly intervening in it. He's making it go. His hand is everywhere in it. Think about what Jesus says in John chapter 5. Jesus says that my father is always at his, there it is again, what? Work to this very day. And he says, I too am working. There, really, a whole theology of work is sitting right in that little verse. That Jesus looks out at the world and he says that my father is at work everywhere in it. He's healing the sick and raising the dead and cleansing the lepers and opening the eyes of the blind. He's preserving and ordering and keeping his world. He's feeding everybody and taking care of everything. And he's called me to step into that work with him. So we could say it like this. Next slide. We could say that God is the first worker and he calls us to work with him for the preservation and healing of his world, which is really just a long way of saying that work is ministry. Work is ministry. This is hard, I think, for us to understand in the church. And many of us are very slow in understanding it. There is a disposition, I think, that we have in the church to see certain forms of labor as like more exalted forms of labor than others. 
And so I remember being a kid growing up in church and traveling evangelists and people would come through and every so often a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or a Thursday night, there would be like an altar call and the preacher would be up there and he would say, tonight, some of you, God is calling you to give up your lives to the service of the ministry, is what they would say. And that meant something very specific. We talked about the ministry. We were talking about using your life to be a preacher or a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist or a worship leader. And so who among you tonight, this morning, whenever, is the Spirit moving upon? If that's you, come forward and we're going to pray for you. And God has a special anointing that he wants to give to you. And we're calling out, we're recognizing these people for the work of the ministry. And that, I think, you know what that does? I mean, it's right that we should acknowledge those things. We have moments of that. We install pastors here at New Life and we're sending people out and all of that. But this is not, whatever happens here is not the ministry as opposed to whatever it is that happens out there. And when we use our language in that way, what it does is it gives the impression that there's like 1% or 2% of people in the church that do like the special stuff that God really cares about. And then the 98%, you know what they do? They go work stupid jobs out there somewhere and hopefully they make enough money to pay the ministers to do the work of the ministry. I just, that's, guys, that's anti-biblical. It's anti-biblical. But somehow in different ways it sneaks into the Judeo-Christian tradition. Think about this. This is a quote I ran into recently. This is from uh, the Jewish Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud. It's about the third, fourth, fifth century, a bunch of rabbinic sayings. And here's a rabbi (laughs) Praying to the Lord, he says, I thank thee, O Lord my God, that thou hast given me my lot with those who sit in the house of learning. He's talking about studying the Torah, the Old Testament. And not with those who sit at the street corners, for I am early to work, and they are early to work. So he's making comparisons. But I am early to work on the words of the Torah, and they are early to work on the things that are of no moment. I weary myself, and they weary themselves I weary myself and I profit thereby, and they weary themselves to no profit. I run and they run, but I run towards the life of the age to come, and they run towards the pit of destruction. A more cynical view of work you could not have. It's like all those doctors out there running towards the pit of destruction, lawyers, pit of destruction, business people, pit of destruction, teachers, pit of destruction, everybody going to the pit of destruction except for this incredibly narrow slice of humanity that has the wild luxury of being able to read the Bible all day and talk about it? Come on, man. But we think that way. Even in Christianity, this is from the 4th century, Eusebius of Caesarea, one of the, Caesarea, one of the greatest historians that the church has ever known, said that two ways of life were given by the law of Christ to his church. The one is above nature and beyond common human living, holy and permanently separate from the common customary life of mankind. It devotes itself to the service of God alone. Such then is the perfect form of the Christian life. And the other more humble, more human permits men to join in pure nuptials, talk about marriage, and produce children and to undertake government and to give orders to soldiers fighting for right. It allows them to have minds for farming and for trade and the other more secular interests as well as for religion and a kind of secondary grade of piety is attributed to them. Man, I don't want to hang out with that guy. Jerk face, you know? <laughs> but we tend to think this way, that the sacred vocations are the vocations that power the church and carry the gospel forward, and then everything else is just like, hey man, if you could just make sure to 
you know, have integrity at your job and witness once in a while, you know, that's, that'll be fine. <laughs> so we think, but that's anti-biblical. Watch this. Watch what the psalmist does here. Psalm 104, one of the greatest psalms, I think, in the Psalter. This beautiful hymn of praise and thanksgiving to God, to all that he's done in creation and preservation and the redemption of all things. And in the middle of it, the psalmist says this. Watch this. He says that he makes grass to grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. The psalmist here is praising God for bringing forth food from the earth. Now watch this. The three kinds of foods that the psalmist mentioned. He mentions number one, bold underline, say it real loud. Now listen, the Bible talks about wine so you can talk about wine. It's okay. He brings forth food from the earth and the first type of the food is... It's the wine. And what does it do? Now, I know that's a real stumbling block for some of you. But that's sacred inspired scripture, okay? And I'm just going to let you do with that what you will. Wine, he says, that gladdens human hearts, number one. Then what's the second thing? Oil to make their faces shine. And what else? Bread that sustains your head. So the song is good. God, thank you for you give us wine that makes our hearts happy. And you give us oil that makes our faces shine, right? Like the modern analog would be lotion, I suppose, or whatever it is. Make your countenance look glad. And bread that sustains our hearts. Amen and amen to all of those things. But here's the thing. I've never just gone walking out in nature and seen bottles of wine hanging on trees. Or vials of oil sitting around in creation nor do you ever wander out into the fields and all of a sudden, look at that, focaccia bread on the ground. It's just, how do we get wine, oil, and bread? The human beings. <laughs> we do these things. It's we leverage our agency. We leverage our ability. And all of a sudden, poof, there's wine where there was not wine. And poof, there's oil where there was only olives before. Now we have bread where we just had grain before the psalmist says that it comes from the hand of God, but it comes through the hands of other people. Guys, this is how God rules his world, that he does it in concert with human beings. And so we might have moments, for instance, in prayer, where we say to the Lord, we lift up our children to the Lord. We say, Lord, take care of our kids, instruct our kids, help our kids, guide our kids, guard our kids. We make that prayer to the Lord. And do you know how the Lord answers that prayer? He raises up teachers and school administrators, people that are gifted to work with kids. We've got a first service, one of, our, uh, one of our congregants at the first service, Amanda Ralston. She's the dean of students here at Grand Peak Academy. So any prayer that you've ever prayed for Grand Peak Academy, God bless them, help them, make your face shine on them, strengthen them, preserve them, make that, make that place a place that's wholesome for the kids. Do you know how God has answered your prayer? With Amanda Ralston. That's how he does it. She is a minister of Christ Jesus working here at 7036 Cowpoke Road. We make these prayers. We say, God, we're living in a time where mental illness and stress and anxiety are at like epidemic levels. Please, those that are troubled in mind and troubled in spirit, would you come to their aid? Would you help them? And do you know how God answers that prayer? He raises up a Rick Manabet. Rick and Jen Manabet come to this congregation. Rick Manabet, licensed clinical therapist, does incredible work. Couldn't be at church this morning because he's in a training to get better at what he does. So we make that prayer to God. And what does he do? He raises up human beings. So we make this prayer. God, those that are sick 
in body, those that are dealing with illnesses and diseases that just can't be cured by ibuprofen and sleep. God, would you help them? And do you know what he does? He raises up doctors and nurses and healthcare administrators. Gail Datsun sitting over here for many, many years, a nurse and an administrator at the highest levels of hospital administrators. Guys, when God wants to get things done in his world, who does he send? Us. And the way that he sends us is not just by going out into the world and like I'm preaching the gospel and I want to see if I can get you to a moment of decision so that you'll come to New Life East on Sunday. That's great. Please do that. And the answering of the emails is part of the work of the, the kingdom of God. And you leading your teams at your job. That's part of the work of God. And you working through the long process of having a budget that best reflects the values of your organization and will do the most amount of good for your constituents, your people that you help. That's the ministry of the Spirit as much as the ministry that happens in this house on Sunday morning. Are you grasping this? Are you with me? I, I need you to know this. So that when we understand the mission of God, we're not just relegating it to the paid religious professionals, but we're putting it in the hands of the people of God. That all the places where they live and move and have their being, that's part of how God is reclaiming all the things that have been disordered by sin. And by the way, sin has disordered a lot of things in our world, which goes to the point about the, you don't know my job and you don't know my boss. You know, like the reason that the world is in the shambles that it's in is because of the fall. Think about Genesis chapter three and what Genesis chapter three is. It's a warping of the relationship between human beings the Lord says to the woman, enmity is going to exist between you and the man. There's going to be like a power struggle happening between the two of you. Think about how much of the work of our world is marred by the fact that there's a misuse of power happening inside of it. Power struggles, right? The other thing that the Lord says to them is that the ground now that you labor over, it's not going to be a joy to labor over it. It'll produce thorns and thistles in addition, in addition to fruit. Creation won't quite work for you. What we have with the fall is not the advent of work. What we have with the fall is the advent of bad work. And bad work is the thing that pollutes God's world. Maybe the most, like the quintessential example of it in the scriptures, of course, is Egypt. Here we have in the book of Exodus, we have Pharaoh, whom God has given gifts of leadership and administration and all of that. He's positioned him to rule over all these people. And Egypt, moreover, has natural resources. They're good natural resources. It has the Nile River, the Fertile Valley there. It was commissioned by God to be a place that's set up for the flourishing of human beings. And instead, what does it become? The biblical witness. It's a place of oppression and chaos and madness. That's work gone bad. And all of our lives in some way or another have been touched by bad work. It's everywhere in God's word. When you think about the prophets of Israel, have you ever read the prophetic text? Those prophets of Israel... Some of the time they're talking to the people of God about how your worship is this and your worship is that and you stop worshiping the idols and all that's bad. But if you ever read like the book of Amos, for instance, do you know how often the prophets of Israel, like they reserve their strongest words for business owners that are not conducting their affairs in a way that glorifies God. And it's not just that God is up in the clouds going, well, I just happen to be offended by that way that you're doing things down there. It's that they're oppressing people. It's that it's warping human life. 
when they boost the scales and scrimp the measures and all of that stuff, when they introduce the element of falsity in what they're doing, these business, it's wrecking God's good world. And we see it everywhere. everywhere. I think about, there's an example for you. I think about a car dealership that Mandy and I used to go to many years ago. We had this 2008 Dodge Grand Caravan. It was in good shape. My dad sold it to us. My dad sold cars for a lot of years. And uh, it was in good shape. And we would go. Like it was a couple years old maybe. And we would go. And Mandy would like, she would go to this dealership. She'd get the oil changed. And she would come back. And I go, how'd it go? She'd go, great. I got the oil changed. And also, honey, they gave me this like list. A laundry list. Like $2,000 worth of repairs that the van needs to have. I go, what $2,000? I drive that thing. The brakes are not squeaky and it's not leaking oil anywhere and everything seems to be good working condition. And I just, like, I just an element of doubt, you know? Like, I'm not, we're not doing that. I'm going to hang on to the next time, you know? So then I would, like three months later, four months later, I'd go take the van into the dealership and they'd take a look at it and change the oil and everything. And they'd come back to me and I'd go, how does everything look, guys? And they'd give me the keys and they'd go, it looks great, Mr. Arndt. Because she's a woman. That's the world that we live in. Some of the great pains of our lives are not just relational pains. It's because there are people out there that sin is motivating to do what they do. So selfishness and lies and falsity and all that stuff. Pride, envy, wrath, anger, all of that has been introduced into our world. And it's corrupting our world. It's a good thing that we have people that sell cars. It's a bad thing that we have people that take advantage of other people. Am I right? It's a good thing that we have people that work in healthcare, doctors and lawyers and administrators. Do you know what's bad? It's bad that we have people that are working in healthcare that are taking advantage of the system. Making it too expensive for people to get the healthcare that they need. Right? Boosting the prices of things. Or you have those doctors and nurses out there. God forbid motivated to keep people sick and in the hospital because it pads the bottom line? That's a stench in the nostrils of almighty God. That's a good thing that we have government. Can I get an amen from somebody? (laughs) It's one of the gifts truly. It's one of the gifts of God given to humanity. People that are gifted to help regulate a wise and orderly society. Do you know what's bad? That we have corruption at every level of government and in both political parties. That's a stench in the nostrils of almighty God. Bad work corrupts God's good world. And we've seen in the last five or six years, and I love it, unprecedented. What it does when you have corruption in government is it breeds cynicism. Between, citizen, between citizens and their governments. And now you have this atmosphere of mistrust. It's a good thing that we have people that work in law enforcement. Thank God. And our armed services. Thank God for the thin blue line. Thank God for the men and women who served our armed service. It is a stench in the nostrils of Almighty God that we have people that take advantage of the system. People that do things that diminish human life. It breaks down trust. We could go on and on and on all day long with this. So what, when we, when we hold these things before Almighty God, and we say, God, these are things that touch our lives. Would you do something about it? How does God answer that prayer? Not a trick question. He sends us. 
He sanctifies a people for himself. And then he sends them into education. And he sends them into health care. And he sends them into government. And he sends them into our police and our armed services. And he sends them into business. And he sends them into the arts. And he sends them into entertainment. And he sends them into food. And he sends them in all, every, every sector of society that you can think of. He is sending us there. We are called, well, you can put it up, the slide up on the screen. He sends his people in every sector of society, bear witness to the kingdom. Our, this is a good line. I like that you wrote that, Andrew. Our work is a sign to the world that what? That God reigns. God reigns. When Christians do what Paul says, when they work as unto the Lord, everything that they do, do it from your heart as unto the Lord, it changes the world and it bears witness to the kingdom. One of the early apologists of the church, Justin Martyr in the second century, actually said that the Christians, one of the ways, like there was no, when you look at the history of Christianity in those first few centuries of the church, there was no strategic evangelistic cam campaign. There was no like strategic plan on how we're going to win people into the church. You know what they did? They just behaved in their lives as citizens of the kingdom. And Justin Martyr actually says that Christian businessmen, because of the way, and women, because of the way they were conducting business, Men and women were coming into the church because of the business people. Wait, there's something different about you. Look at how you handle this interaction. Look at how you handle that stuff that you're doing. What is it about you? And all of a sudden questions are being asked that bring people into the life of the kingdom of God. Our work is a sign to the world that God reigns and the church is built up and the kingdom grows through it, ladies and gentlemen. So the question becomes, I'm going to leave you with four things. I'm going to do them as quick as I can because this is going long here. What does it look like for us to work as unto the Lord? I'm going to give you four things real quick to think about. Number one, I just say this, and this is maybe especially uh, relevant to those of you that are on uh, the younger side of life. You still have the power of choosing what you want to do with your life, but I think this applies to everybody. Um, find something that you can do with joy and do it as long as you possibly can. One of the distinctions I've sometimes made to people is that uh, who you are, how God has gifted you and called you, what brings you delight when you do it, that's your vocation. That's who you are. It's what you do. When Andrew Andrew's in the world, whatever that is, that's like the center of my calling. So your occupation then is what you do nine to five and you get paid for. You know what, like to me, like the optimal situation is that somehow you found a way to bring your vocation, your talents, aptitudes, and abilities in line with your vocation or your occupation, what it is you do from nine to five. Frederick Buechner says this. He says the place that God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. What is it that you do that when you do it, you feel most to yourself? Can you do that? Can you leverage that in a way that brings blessing and goodness into the world. That's the place that God calls you to. So find something you can do with joy and do it as long as you can possibly do it, number one. Number two, I'd say learn to do what you do in tandem with the Lord. My father, Jesus says, is always at his work and I too am working. It's not a matter of bringing God into your work. It's a matter of identifying where God is at in your work. God, what are you doing here? What would please you here? In the way that I'm leading my team, in the way that I'm managing these people, in the way that I'm writing the budget, in the way that I'm trying to shape values in this place, what is it that the world needs that I can give? And where are you at work? And how can I partner with you in that? Many of you probably over the years have read the great book, the little book, uh, Practice, uh, The Practice of the Presence of God. But Brother Lawrence, this monk who lived like 300 years ago, French monk, I think, 
so beautiful. He had like, he just did his work in the monastery. It was like peeling potatoes and running errands. And yet because he was able, it's like mundane stuff. And yet because of his awareness of the presence of God, all of those places of doing the laundry and cutting the potatoes and cooking and running errands, it became for him a place of communion with the living God. Do you understand that? You don't have to leave behind God in your prayer closet or here in this space. But he's there. He's working with you, inviting you to work with him for the blessing and the building up of his world. So learn to do what you do in tandem with the Lord. Number three, learn to do what you do with excellence and skill. Whatever it is, Paul says, you do, do it with all of your heart. Sometimes the reason that we're miserable in our jobs is that we've just been lackadaisical in the way that we approach that work. But that's not a Christian attitude to work. A Christian attitude to work is that we do it as an offering unto God. That's what Paul says. You're doing it for the Lord. You're not doing it with human beings. So if you're doing it for the king of the universe, how would you do it? Dorothy Sayers says it so beautifully here. She says that the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. But what the church should be telling him is this that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Church, by all means, decent forms of amusement, certainly, but what uses all that? And in the very center of his life and occupation, he is insulting God with bad carpentry. No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth, nor if they did could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. Next slide. Is there a next slide? There wasn't a next slide. Back it up. Yeah, I just thought there was a different one. It doesn't matter. Do you remember what they said about Jesus in the Gospels? He has done everything well. And may that also be said of us. That what we do, we do well. We do in a way that reflects the excellence and the skill of our maker. And then number four, last one. Learn to do what you do for God's glory and other people's good. What satisfies us most deeply, see, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said that the one who tries to save their life, what happens? You lose it. If you lose it, what happens? You gain it. When we make the work of our hands, not about ourselves, that's where disillusionment sets in. We're doing it to try to make ourselves fulfilled and happy and all of that. But suppose we went into it going, what will bless other people and what will give glory to God? Jesus says that somehow we'll actually find our lives in that. And so church, would you stand this morning? So we prepare our hearts for the table here. I want you now just in your own kind of symbolic way. You could even do it with your hands like this if you want to. And I want you to gather up all of the work of your hands. Certainly your job. But some of you are too young to have a job. And some of you retired and you haven't had a job for a long time. And yet you're alive and kicking. All of us are. Which means that we have things that we do that have been entrusted to us by the living God. The management of our lives, the care of the people in our world. Some of us here this morning, we've got artistic gifts and abilities, music, poetry, writing, painting. We've got those things. All the manner of things in which God has gifted us with ability and called us in the world. I want you just to hold all those things up before the Lord right now. And so we say, come, oh God. By the power of the Spirit, we say that we have been consecrated unto you. So I pray that in this place you would refresh our imagination for what it is we do and why it matters. 
Lord, I'm praying for every occupation that's represented in this house. For all the teachers in this place, I'm praying, may your spirit fall. As we come up on a new school year, I pray that there would be fresh imagination and fresh energy for the work. For everybody in this place this morning that works in health care, doctors, doctors and nurses and administrators, Lord Jesus, fall upon them. Everybody that works in the law or law enforcement, Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd come. All the occupations of our hands, business owners and craftspeople and tradespeople, Lord Jesus, would you come? And Paul says, offer our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. So this morning we consecrate these things to you. We ask that you would baptize us anew in the very love of God, which reshapes the way that we approach our work. Make us ready again to do your will. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, sing this song of worship in response. And then Pastor Colin's going to lead us to the table.
Show us how to make this city more like heaven. Father, to love those around us, to be witnesses, Father. We go into all the earth, Father, proclaiming the name of Jesus in what we do and what we put our hands to, Father. Give us discernment, give us wisdom. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That was also the work of Jesus, and he considered it joy. Would you hold your communion elements in your hand? And the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, after he'd given thanks, would you give him thanks in your heart? Thank you, Jesus. He took the bread, and he broke it. His body was pierced for your transgressions. Would you receive the gift of his body? That same night after supper, he took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the cup of salvation. Would you hold it in your hand? There's a newness associated with this. He makes all things new. There's redemption associated with this and resurrection because the, the grave could not hold him. Would you ask Jesus in this moment just to redeem your work? To show and provide redemption where you need that. God, thank you for this resurrection life. Would you help us? Would you receive the cup together? Thank you, Jesus. Let's lift our voices in doxology. Let's sing.
New Life East, lift your hands like this. You are God's sent ones, his called ones. You're the missionaries, you're the ambassadors. All that you do is part of how God is reaching the world. He's putting all things back together again. So as you go from this place, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I received that family. I'll ask our altar ministry team to come forward here if you, uh, what's that? Oh, yeah, they're at the, the altar ministry team. They're already there. Look at them at the sides over here. If you need prayer for anything, we would love to pray for you this morning. Uh, trying to think of if I have anything else to say to you. I don't. You're loved. New Life East. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you next week.